0: Today, we, as you would have guessed, are continuing in our Exodus series, and so we're continuing our way through the Ten Commandments. And as we continue our study of the Decalogue, for those of you who uh, haven't been around, Decalogue is one of the most common terms for the Ten Commandments because it means ten words or ten sayings. In Hebrew, uh, there is no... They're, they're not considered the Ten Commandments. They're considered the Ten Sayings, rules for life, so to speak. And so they're beyond just commandments, but are meant to encompass all of life and how we view life under God as His covenant people. And so as we continue in the Decalogue, we are now transitioning into what I like to call the Horizontal, Commands. And by that, I mean the commandments that deal with our relations regarding other people. The first four commandments or sayings deal, if you would like to think of it this way, with our vertical relationship to God. It's how we respond directly to Him in light of who He is and what He has done whereas the last six of the ten sayings deal with our horizontal relationships one to another. But the horizontal is sourced first from the vertical. And so those first four commandments lay the foundation for how we properly see the Lord and how we honor Him, while the next six deal with how we see and how we respond to one another in light of our view of God. And so, in another sense, the weight of these commands, the the authority of them, is not just in the fact that they are moral commands in and of themselves, because they are that. They're universal in their morality. But their weight really is sourced from the fact that these commands must be obeyed in light of who God is and how he has ordered the world. So put another way, obedience to these six commands cannot be isolated in and of themselves. So say, you cannot formulate what obedience looks like to them within the respective relations. Okay? For example, uh, as we're going to see today in the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, it's not up to the father, the mother, and the children to decide what this looks like. It's up to God, and there's an objective standard. In the same sense, there's a command to not commit adultery. But if you have a really terrible marriage and you've decided with your spouse that you guys can have an open marriage, you're still breaking the commands. It's not up to the respective individuals or relationships to determine what obedience to these looks like. It's up to God because they're sourced primarily from how we see God. And so we must see what objective obedience to these looks like so that we not only have right relations with one another but through them have right relation with God. So as we will see today, the fifth commandment actually means something concrete. It's not open to our interpretation. It matters because God matters. And so if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy law. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Let us pray. Worthy are you, O Lord our God. Your word is perfect and eternal, and it shall never pass. And so we pray and ask that you would give us wisdom by your Spirit and give us knowledge in the Scriptures that we might see you for who you really are that we might respond with faithful obedience and that Christ would be formed in us today. We are your people for your possession and so we submit all things to you and we submit ourselves to you and to your word. Let it filter all things. Let it sift all things. Let it expose sins and misunderstandings and ignorances. May it encourage us. May it strengthen us. And may it uh, embolden us that we might proclaim your name among all peoples. Do this for your name's sake, Father. It's in the name of Christ, your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is what seems like a very simple commandment, and it is simple. But we, we need to establish some presuppositions of the scriptures to really tease out what this means. And so we're going to begin with the nature of authority, the nature of authority. This is something that's presupposed in the scriptures, but is explained throughout in in a passing sense. Paul does explain the nature of authority a little bit more specifically in Romans 13, and even Jesus in his response to Pilate gives us a hint of the nature of authority. But in God's good design and His care of this world, He has established temporal and finite authorities that are intended to extend His authority and reflect Him as the great sovereign over all things. This is true at every level of society because God has designed hierarchy as a function of His good world. Hierarchy is not the byproduct of sin or of the fall of mankind. Can it be abused? Yes. Is it abused? Most definitely. But hierarchy is from the beginning and is itself the good design of our Maker. And this is self-evident. Okay, we know that there are kings over countries, commanders over armies, masters over servants, employers over employees, teachers over students, pastors over churches, husbands over wives, and parents over children. In fact, this hierarchical relationship of parents and children along with marriage is woven into the fabric of our very existence. God has made the world in such a way that people must procreate to survive. It has to happen. It has to happen. Our species would die. Quite literally. And God has made the world this way because it's His good design. Therefore, because we, were, we must procreate, therefore parents and children exist by necessity. You will never not have a father or a mother. Think about that. You will never not have a father or a mother. Whether you've met your father or mother or whether they pass on later in life, does not take away the fact that you exist because you have a father and a mother. In His good design, God has given each of us a particular father and a particular mother. None of us us were given the option to choose who our father and mother are. So this is important to consider. God has given you a relationship to other people, your parents, and you have had zero say in the matter. Zero. No, in in no way, shape, or form can you choose your parents. As a child, you have zero control over who has authority over you. You choose, again, nothing. They are who they are. This highlights the importance of the command, actually. It's by sheer nature. And When I say nature, I mean God's good design. I don't mean the randomness of the cosmos that many today would credit with creating the world as we know it. When I say nature, I mean God's good, sovereign, providential design. But by sheer nature, your parents are your parents. You belong to them. And nothing you can do will change that. And certainly in the social order of our society, there are some exceptions in the sense that some are adopted, some are abandoned. But those are still your parents nonetheless. And in adoption, you're given new parents, not of your choosing. So my point still remains. So in this most fundamental, natural building block of the world, we get a glimpse of God. We are creatures, and He is the Creator. We don't get to choose Him. He is who He is. He is the potter, and we are the clay. He is the Father... And we are the child. It is through the parent-child relationship that we are to first understand that there is a God. And we belong to Him. This becomes a lot more obvious when you consider throughout the scriptures how the Lord talks to His people. He often says, I am the God of your fathers of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, he appeals to people, to his people, by way of their fathers, thus showing that he is the ultimate father. It's for this reason that I believe that this command is the first of all the horizontal commands and therefore takes primacy over the subsequent commands. And so to elaborate very briefly, not everyone thinks this, but I I believe that the commands have a particular order and that each command is more weighty, more authoritative than the subsequent command. The reason I think this is, well, for one, read them all, okay, and you'll see what I mean. But two, imagine you're a Christian in Nazi Germany and you're hiding Jews, And the Gestapo stops by asking, are you hiding Jews? Is it a sin to lie? Not, no, I do not think so. And I think there's scriptural evidence for this, Hebrew midwives. Because the duty to do not murder is more weighty than the duty to do not lie. And the nature of lying in terms of the sin of it, is for self-preservation. And in this instance, you are saving the life of another. This is what I mean when I say, when I say that this command is first of the, the six horizontal commandments and therefore takes primacy over them all. Because this is the, the relationship by which God wants us to See Him first. Again, this is why He appeals to His people as the God of their fathers. And so I do want to give us a, a small kind of operational theology of authority in general, not just as it regards to parents and children. Scriptures, the Scriptures unequivocally state that any authority in this world is an authority established and endowed by God himself. Therefore, we must sub- submit to all authorities in the Lord. And that's the, uh, that's the operative term, in the Lord. So it means that we submit to all these authorities to the degree that these authorities uphold the law of God. So what do I mean by this? Say you have a boss, you're an employee, and you have a boss that wants you to lie to a client for some reason or another. It is now your duty to disobey the unlawful command of the lesser authority in order to properly honor and obey God, who is the greater authority. Do you see how that works? However, that's still your boss until you quit. So this does not mean you can now reject everything your boss commands. If in response to you disobeying the command or the instruction to lie, your boss now gives you busy work as punishment, you must now do the busy work to the glory of God. You are only allowed to disobey to the degree to which it is against the law of God. I think this is completely true in this case as well because some of us have unbelieving parents. And as children, we perhaps had unbelieving parents. This does not mean you had license to say no when your parents said, go clean your room. Don't disrespect me. Watch your mouth. Go clean the dishes, etc., etc." There was They were still the authority, though ungodly, And those commandments were not in defiance to the law of God. And so the moral nature of this command is universal. We'll see later that the promise is not. The promise is not universal. But the moral component of the command is universal. Regardless if one's parents are rightly in covenant with God or not. You must still honor them to the degree... To which is lawful to honor them. Now, there might be some in the room who think, wait a second, doesn't Jesus say some things about parents in light of following him, in light of being a disciple? Well, he does, but they're often misconstrued and misunderstood. And so I'm going to read them for us, and I'm going to read three different accounts. Two are the same account in two different Gospels, but Uh, I'm going to read them very quickly, and I'll tell you where they're at. And then you'll see the overall picture of what I mean. Luke 9, starting in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And then later in Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's actually key to understanding what he's getting at. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? "'Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, "'all who see it begin to mock him, saying, "'This man began to build and was not able to finish. "'Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, "'will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 "'to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? "'And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, "'he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace.' So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then lastly, Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what is Jesus getting at? Is he upending and annulling the law found in the Decalogue? No. No, he's not. In fact, Jesus quite often says to the face of the Pharisees, you don't know the commands. You don't know the commandments. You have misinterpreted what it means to obey father and mother. And so he upholds the commandments. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he quotes it verbatim to Pharisees who were distorting it and twisting it for their own gain. So what is Jesus getting at? And this is very important because I think there's much confusion in the church about what does it mean to follow Jesus and what does it mean to honor father and mother. Notice the context of every time he says this. In the first account, in Luke 9, he literally has people already on the road with him. They've been following him. And he continues to say, follow me, and this man says, I need to go bury my father. We don't know if his father's already dead or if he's going to die. We don't know that. That information's not here. But Jesus says, don't do it. Why? Because he had just received a command that demands the immediacy of obedience. Do you see that? Obedience delayed is not obedience. And so Jesus is saying, I'm asking you right here and now to continue to follow me that we might proclaim the kingdom of God. And this man is saying, I've got other things to do, Lord. And he's guising this apprehension with honoring father and mother. But he's not actually honoring his father. This is true when Jesus says, Let the dead bury the dead, he calls his bluff. And again, in the next account, if anyone does not come, comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's not saying abandon house and home per se, per se. That, that can happen. <laughs> but he adds the degree to which you hate father and mother is to the same degree that you must hate yourself, meaning lay it all down and follow me do you see do you see that that he's he's there's this kind of guttural reaction he's looking for this it's almost shock that Jesus employs quite often when he speaks to the crowds the same sort of shock you see in John 6 when he says unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you can't belong to me you don't have eternal life it's the same sort of thing because these people weren't taking serious what does it mean to follow Him as the Messiah, to actually see Him for who He is. But the same God who says, hate everyone and yourself more than me, is the same God who says, honor your father and your mother. They're not in conflict with one another. And we have to remember that. We have to remember that. But Jesus gave these people a law he gave them a word and they hesitated they hesitated we cannot set aside the immediacy of obedience our immediacy meaning who we respond to and how we respond belongs completely to jesus in all things and the same jesus who asks us to respond immediately to him is the same jesus who says honor your father and your mother so we have to remember that Okay. Now that we see the nature of authority and that God is the great sovereign over all and all authority belongs to Him and He gives it to whom He pleases, if you're a parent in the room, He has given you authority without a doubt. Now that we understand the nature of authority, who it comes from and how it ought to be used, we need to deal directly with the commandment. So now we see what is the duty to honor. What is the duty to honor? The commandment very simply states, honor your father and your mother. We'll get to the promise later. Well, as I mentioned in my intro, this, this has to mean something, does it not? It can't simply be a commandment left to our own interpretations. There must be objectivity to it in order for us to understand it and to obey it. If we wanna keep the commandments, we have to understand them. So it has to mean something. And we need to start first by understanding the operative verb what does honor mean? What does honor mean? I think we fail to grasp, English, native English speakers, we fail to grasp even what the word honor means because our culture doesn't really use it that much. But even this isn't, it's a slightly subpar translation. When we think of honor, we often think of judges, right? Yes, your honor, or the honorable judge, so-and-so. We might think of the past when we think of the medieval age when kings and queens were honorable. They had, they embodied this sort of monarchic glory, you know, this royalty. We might think of that, but the word here is, is interesting, and it, it actually took me by surprise. It's kabod. It's kabod. and I know You don't know what that means yet, so let me tell you. It's a word that communicates heaviness, weight, or, here it is, glory. It's the same exact word used in the scriptures for the glory of God. Same word. It's the same word used when we are commanded to glorify God. So you can quite literally translate this, give glory to your father and your mother. It's because of this that I think the best definition of what this honor means comes from the reformer, John Calvin himself, who said, The honor spoken of here consists of three parts, reverence, obedience, and love. So to honor our father and mother means to revere them as those whom God has placed over us. They are the ones who have quite literally brought us into this life. To obey their rules and statutes so long as it is in keeping with and upholds the law of God. And to genuinely love them for the gift that they are to us from God. This weighty honor must contain these three things because this is what it means to honor God himself. The term, the word, has to mean something. And when the Bible says, honor the Lord in your hearts, you know that doesn't mean to disobey him, to spurn him, and to run away from him. Therefore, you cannot say, well, my parents and I have a bad relationship, so God understands, right? Or, this is common today, my parents are worthless, I'm better off keeping distance. Or as the parent of your own child, you might say, I'm going to lower the standard of obedience for my child because he or she doesn't know any better. Our world, our culture has been filled with reasons for why people do not obey this simple command. Many Christians don't obey this command. But but God's law gives us no escape. We must as children, regardless of our age, choose to honor our father and mother despite their failures. Or alternatively, when we as parents to children instruct and discipline our own children to honor us despite our own failures, we are actually submitting to God and His good design. We are acknowledging Him as Lord, the final authority. Th- therefore, to honor your earthly father and mother is to honor God Himself as the Father overall. Again, this is the first commandment of the six horizontal. And this takes primacy over all, over all those. To honor father and mother is to revere them, to obey them, and to love them. So now let us make our way to the, the promised benefit of the commandment. What's particularly amazing about this commandment is not only is it the first of the horizontal commandments, as I mentioned, but it is, as Paul says to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 6, that this is the first commandment with a promise. He doesn't mean that it's the first promise in relation to the law. Because, remember, if if you remember our brief discussion of covenant, some weeks ago, there's a continuation of all the covenants. They overlap in their administrations, but they're all under what we call the covenant of grace. And so the Mosaic covenant, the giving of the law, is the fulfillment, quite literally, of the Abrahamic covenant. And there's a thread going through all of them. So the promise of land is assumed in the law and reiterated in the law, but it first came to Abraham. But just because Abraham's not on the scene anymore doesn't mean the promise of the land goes away. So this is this is our biblical evidence that the commandment, excuse me, the covenants, all sub, are are submitted to one overarching covenant that we call the covenant of grace. So the first promise in relation to the law is the promise given to Abraham that his children would inherit the land. We see that in Genesis 12. And then Abraham is reaffirmed, God reaffirms this covenant to Abraham in Genesis 15 and he defines the borders of the land. Furthermore, in, ex- in the exchanging of the covenantal vows in Exodus 19, if you remember the sermon on consecration where these marriage vows are being exchanged with, between God, Moses, and the elders before Moses ascends Mount Sinai for the first time, there's these covenant vows being exchanged, and the promise of God in the giving of the vows is that He would make Israel His treasured possession because the earth belongs to Him. So there's this relationship to the land in the promise that I will show you that you are my, possess, my possession by placing you in the land, right? Not only that, but He says... Um, that that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, a nation has to exist somewhere, does it not? So everything happening in this Mosaic dispensation of the covenant of grace is fulfilling all that was promised to Abraham, and that's really the biggest promise of the law, that Israel would inherit the land. And all of those promises primary the land are tied to the covenant as I mentioned the covenant of grace that God has been unfolding to his people but this commandment though has its own unique promise honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you notice that this promise is a blessing to be experienced in the covenant promise of land. So this is, so as I mentioned earlier, the moral component of this command, honor your father and mother, it's universal to all because it's a reflection of God, his goodness, and his sovereignty over all the created world. All, all men and women of all places, every tribe, every tongue, every nation should obey this law. Because it's good. It's good for them. And it magnifies God. But this promise is only for God's covenant people. Because it's bound to the promises of the covenant. Do you see that? That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So why then is this particular promise tied to the obedience of this particular command? Why? Couldn't this be given to any of them? Why this one? Well, besides what we've already established, that to honor father and mother is to honor God himself, this promise is related to the nature of the commandment. Okay? Let's tease that out. We are blessed with many days, a.k.a. a long life, when we honor the ones who gave us life. In God's sovereign design, this is all under God. So I don't want you to think, well, it's God who gave me life, not my parents. Yes, that's true ultimately, but your parents still brought you in this world. So in God's sovereign design, your parents brought you into this life. They fed you, they clothed you, they educated you, and if they really did their job, they brought you up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. But nevertheless, you are here because of them. As God has ordained it. My mom, maybe I shouldn't hear this, when I was being uh, particularly defiant as a young child, she said, boy, I brought you into this life and I can take you out. There's <laughs> eh, some truth to that. <laughs> uh, she got after me good. And, <laughs> and I'm thankful for it. Again, your parents brought you into this life, so to honor them comes with the reward of being given a long life. Long life is promised to the one who honors their parents as the life givers. This life for life reward becomes quite obvious when we discover elsewhere in God's law what the punishment for disobedience to this law includes. And this should, I I think it 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 should sober our thinking. Exodus 21, verse 17 says this. So before I read this, look, we must always let Scripture interpret Scripture. If we don't understand something, we must search first and foremost the rest of God's good word that it might shed more light on the subject. And the law does shed quite a bit of light on this subject. It the the law proper, the Decalogue has given us the benefits of keeping the law. And elsewhere in the law, we see we see the consequences of not keeping it. And so we can see the consequence and thus understand what the positive nature of the law is because of the consequence. Do you see, see what I mean there? We see the weight of it when we hold fully to what God says regarding it. So, Deuteron—excuse me Exodus 21, verse 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Again, in Leviticus 20. By the way, that Exodus text quoted twice by Jesus. So Jesus upholds this because, again, he didn't come to abolish the law. And if that sounds strange, I'll explain later. Leviticus 20, verse 9. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. And again, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones you sh- so you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear there's there's some interesting implications with that with that commandment notice that the parents are not at fault for the son's rebellion because they disciplined him they disciplined him. So we can rightly infer that it is a parent's duty to discipline their children that they might honor them. It starts with you, parents. If your child is disobedient and defiant, it first reveals the foolishness bound in their heart, says the, says the Proverbs. But if, un, if not dealt with, if If left, it reveals the foolishness in your heart because you're content with them dishonoring you and therefore incurring the guilt of God's law. These parents, however, are off the hook because they disciplined him. That's the first inference. The second is even more interesting. This son is old enough to be called a glutton and a drunkard. We often assume, I think culturally, that once we reach a certain age, we're kind of off the hook from our parents. And yes, there are certain milestones that change our relationship to our parents, such as when a man is joined to his wife and the two become one, he is now head of his own household, but he's not off the hook in honoring his father and mother. And as this text says, he's not off the hook in obeying his father and mother. Now, the degree to which his father and mother require obedience changes with age, most certainly. But these parents were pleading with their grown son to stop drinking and carousing and being a, a terrible person. And he refused. I don't even think he lived with them because it says... Then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, not their city, his. I don't even think he lived with him. And yet the scriptures assume that he owed them obedience because they knew the difference between good and evil and he did not. And lastly, Deuteronomy 27, verse 16, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the peoples shall say, Amen. May a curse be on anyone who does not honor father or mother. So I think now we can see quite clearly the weight of this commandment. Long life is given for obedience to it. And rightly so, death is given for disobedience to it. If you honor those who gave you life, you likewise receive more life. If you curse and disobey those who gave you life, your life will be required of you. This is God's justice. This is God's justice. Now... What does this mean in light of the covenant fulfillment in Christ? Well, the promise bound to this commandment is still effective today. It's still binding. How? How? Didn't all this stuff go away with the new covenant? Well, no, not necessarily. Let me explain. All the curses of the law have rightly been abrogated in Christ. Christ in Galatians 3 starting in verse 10 Paul writes for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse for it is written cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith the promise came before the law, and the law cannot annul the promise. And saying that the covenant of grace has been fulfilled in Christ. Then again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says this, For all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Him. This is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So the church needs, we, we have to do this. We cannot pretend like the law is some distant writing that no longer matters. We'd be very foolish to think that. The church needs to learn how to live in and love the law of God. We need to be able, on the one hand, to read it, with fear and trembling, because it is the righteous standard of a holy God, and He is not like us. And on the other hand, we need to take hold of every single promise and blessing of the law. Everything granted to Israel is ours, because through Christ Jesus, we are Israel. You have to believe that. This is what the Bible teaches The curse of the law has been done away with in Christ, and the blessings remain. We are the people of God. All of this is His word to us. Live in all of it. Don't recoil at the law, even if you don't understand it, but see Christ through it. And this is how we know that the promise given with this commandment is still in effect. And if you still have a hard time believing that, well, Paul quotes this commandment verbatim to the church at Ephesus with no qualification. Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, honor your father and mother For this, he even parenthesized, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that your days may be long in the land. He qualifies nothing, but he directly quotes it to Gentile believers. Why? Because in belonging to Christ, they are Israel, the people of God. We are Israel, and all the promises are ours in Jesus Christ. This is why, too... Hear me out. We must not attempt to over-spiritualize the promises of the law. I think sometimes we're guilty of that because we don't know what to do with them. I can imagine someone thinking right now, long days in the land, what good does that do me? I have eternal life in Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, that's very true. But, we mustn't remove the physical corporeal blessings that God intends to grant us for faithful obedience. This life matters. This life matters. And while we only see now through a mirror dimly, nevertheless, this life on this side of the resurrection matters immensely. And our Heavenly Father has given it as a gift. And He absolutely wants us to rejoice in it to the glory of His name. The promise of long days in the land is like the icing on the cake. But the icing matters because God has said it does. And so we can bank on it. We don't need to do away with it because we think we have some heavenly set mind. But we apprehend the promise because God has deemed it right to give it to us. Therefore, let us embrace this commandment to honor our father and our mother, which is the first with a promise, knowing that this commandment is good and the promise given with it is also good. So as we conclude, I want to give us uh, three three points for application. I, I think if you're thinking critically through this, you, you probably have a lot of questions. But and I'd be happy to help answer anything later, but I think perhaps these three applications will help give us a framework for what does this mean now. First point, children in the room, regardless of your age, so that means all of us, the Lord commands us to honor father and mother, which means to revere them, to obey them, and to love them. And in doing so, we will honor the Lord himself as father over all. Any attempt to alter this commandment or to nuance honor to fit our needs is simply a refusal of the immediacy and the objectivity of obedience. We must obey the authorities placed over us in the Lord. In the Lord. You've got to remember that. We obey in the Lord. For some, of you, for some of you, this might mean you need to make a phone call to mom or dad later today. Perhaps you need to repent For being an insolent teenager or a rebellious son or daughter. Or perhaps you just need to thank your parents for doing everything they could for you. For doing the best that they knew how. And I would highly recommend that call if you've never done so. Number two, parents in the room. Me being one of them. It is our duty to raise our children in such a way that they honor us, and we should expect them to honor us. This is not a selfish thing, but it's God's good design. We should desire to be honored, not for our own sake, but so that God is glorified, and so that our children inherit long days in the land. I want that for my children, and I assume you do as well. For those of us with young children in particular, do not delay in setting the standard for honor high in the home. If you excuse their disobedience now, you will excuse it when they are teenagers and again when they are adults. Start now. Do not delay. Raise up your children to obey the Lord. And that means obeying you. And the last point. Receive the promise of this commandment with gladness and anticipation. Take hold not only of this promise, but of all the covenant promises of the scriptures. For they all have their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ our Savior. Let's pray. Worthy are you, O Lord, of all praise, honor, and adoration. Your law is good and is a perfect reflection of your character, your kindness, and your mercy towards people. May we learn to love it like the psalmist does in Psalm 119. May we learn to to see it in light of Jesus Christ, the perfect law keeper, who now is our righteousness. Lord, thank you that though the law produced in us sin because it exposed our nature, the penalty has been paid for, the curse has been abrogated, and all the blessings are now ours. I pray that you would stir us to faithful obedience, that we might honor your name, and that you might be pleased with us as we delight in you. And I pray all these things according to the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.